Well, at this time, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. And what I'd like to do this evening as a meditation before we come to the Lord's Supper is I want to help you understand, some of you and others of you, this will be review, but I want to help you understand a phrase that is read every time that we partake of communion or the Lord's Supper, but it, for some it may just be a phrase that I'm not, you're maybe not really sure what it means or what is the significance. And it is this phrase when the Lord Jesus says this blood is the new covenant, rather this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What is the significance of this phrase, new covenant? And this is what I want to examine together, and I want to look at a few different passages, because this is the covenant that is being illustrated tonight through the obedience of baptism, through the testimony of the work of God in this young man's heart. He has, upon faith in Jesus Christ, become a partaker in this new covenant. And so I want to explain, help you understand what is meant by this and, and what the significance is. Again, this is, this is somewhat of a, a biblical meditation, I suppose, more than a sermon, but we're going to look at this together. I'm going to begin in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, and I'm going to read through verse 40. We're going to be moving to a few different passages. Jeremiah 31 Verse 31, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Amen. So here is the scene, the setting. These are the last days of, of Judah. The 10 northern tribes of Israel have already been Uh, exiled by the Assyrian Empire long before Jeremiah writing this. And at this time, Jerusalem itself is under siege. You can see that in chapter 32, verse 2. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. 
So this is, this is the lowest point. Uh, king Zedekiah of Judah is a godless king. He has not obeyed the Lord. He has not heeded the word of the prophet Jeremiah. And the people have continued on in their disbelief and in their idolatry. And so the judgment is coming and it is here. This is the lowest point. This is the Jerusalem, the city of the great king, the city of the Lord, the city of David is being attacked and it is under siege. And this time the king of Babylon will not be drawn away. His troops will not be drawn away. This time they will tear down the walls. This time they will tear down the gates. They will burn them and including the temple, the house of the Lord itself. The populace will be hauled off with only a few stragglers left behind. Jeremiah himself will be, will be um, released and allowed to remain. But much of the intellectual and the ruling class and, the, and those who are able will be brought away hundreds of miles to Babylon. And there will be left a decimated Judah never really fully recovered. Of course, there will be a return of a remnant. Um, but as I said this morning, as we considered the entry of our Lord into Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 21, there has not been a king who has sat on the throne of David in Jerusalem. When our Lord entered Jerusalem, there had not been a king there for some 600 years. And now we're approaching 3,000 years. 3,000 years since or some 2,600, 2,700 years since a king last sat on the throne in Israel, a son of David, a descendant. And yet God has promised through the prophet Jeremiah and other prophets that he would make a new covenant with Israel. He says in verse 31 that it is not like the one which they he established with them previously when they were brought out of Egypt. Verse 32, rather, not like the covenant I made with their fathers. What was that covenant like? It's no, you can find it in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. It was a covenant command consisting of various laws. And those moral commands, of course, still last today. It's still true. You shall not murder. <laughs> it is still true. You shall not commit adultery and so forth. But the covenant that God made with Israel not only included those moral laws, but there were various ceremonial restrictions, how they were to dress and how God was to be worshipped and so forth. And along with those commands, there was, there was a list of, for obedience, there was a blessing, and for disobedience, there was curse. It was that simple. Obey and be blessed. Disobey and be cursed. And of course, they disobeyed. By and large, there were maybe a few godly people, but as a whole, the nation, not only in that generation, but in throughout the history of Israel and Judah, they followed after. They broke all the Ten Commandments. They did it with vigor and with zeal, as we've seen in our study of First Kings. And so the, that covenant that God had entered into with Israel was a covenant that, listen, depended in part, in large part, upon their holding up to their end of the bargain. It depended, in order for them to be blessed, upon Israel maintaining obedience to the law. And the law was, was reasonable. It was good. It was pure. It was holy. But because of who we are as sinners, not Israel could not keep it. None of them could ultimately. It was not a way of salvation, 
but it was a covenant. God said, I will be your God if you obey me. And of course, they did not, and they were cursed. And it ended up in this situation where Jerusalem itself is torn down. That was prophesied by Moses all the way back in Exodus in the series of blessings and curses. And one of the curses was if Israel turned away from this law, that God would crush their cities, tear them down, and scatter them to the four corners of the earth. So this is a low point when Jeremiah is ministering, but God says the covenant that he's going to make with Israel and Judah, notice that, Judah is right at this point, you know, the southern kingdom. Israel has been known as the kingdom in the north. Israel's been out of the picture now for decades. They've been scattered. You couldn't find Israel if you looked for it. And yet God still insists, no, I'm going to enter into a covenant with the house, verse 27, of Israel and the house of Judah. Verse 31, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. God knows who the house of Israel was, and God knows who the house of Judah was, and all the people alive at that time knew exactly who the house of Israel and the house of Judah was. And God insists, I'm going to make a new covenant. It's a new covenant, and it's different from this older mosaic, if you want to call it that, covenant. It wasn't Moses, it was God's. But this is the difference, verse 33. I will put my law within them. Not among them, not around them. I will put my good holy law and I'll insert it right in them. And I will write my law not on stone tablets that need to be taught and read and so forth regularly, but I will actually write my law on their heart. In other words, I'm going to make it so that these people not only obey and know my law, but in their heart, they love it and they want to do it. I'm going to change their very hearts. And I will be their God and they will shall be my people. Verse 34, they shall not teach again, each man his neighbor. In other words, God is, there's a day coming when Israel and Judah, there will no longer be any ignorant people concerning the the gospel, concerning Jesus Christ. Uh, Have you noticed that we live in a post-Christian culture? Have you noticed around us, and I'm I'm still, you know, kind of catching on. I mean, I know, but it's still, as as one who grew up here, and many of you have this experience as well, you know, growing up decades ago, and there was still a time when it was generally accepted, you know, Christianity, vaguely and and certain moral laws were known you could ask someone if they knew the ten commandments they probably knew them those days are completely gone they don't know anything of god they don't know anything of the bible they don't know anything of his law and what god is saying and that those kinds of conditions that existed in israel in the days of the judges and in this time when jerusalem is being overthrown that will not be the condition anymore God will cause a renewal of a remnant of Israel and Judah. He'll write his law on their hearts, and they will all know the Lord, from the least of them to the greatest of them. It won't be a matter of whether you were a ruler or in the the king's house and you had access to education. No, they will all know the Lord. And God is rather uh, determined to underscore that 
Israel and Judah, verse 36, will not cease being a nation before me forever. If the moon is still shining, if the stars are still shining, if the sun is still rising, then God's covenant with Israel and Judah is still standing. There's no lack of clarity there. God is perfectly clear. And it seems laughable and absolutely impossible. Because to this day, to the very day we're in, yes, there is a nation of Israel, and that is remarkable and a work of God. But it is not the fulfillment yet of what is being spoken of here. So God still insists that he's going to renew a remnant of Israel and Judah and reestablish them, unite them. This is the new covenant. It is breathtaking. It is, it is so astounding that it, it is difficult. If you were living in Jeremiah's day, it would be difficult to believe this. You don't even know where the 10 northern tribes are. They've been hauled off. Other foreigners have been brought in. You couldn't even identify the 10 tribes in the north if you wanted to. And in the south, the Judah and Benjamin, now they're being overrun by the Babylonians. This is an outlandish, if I can say that reverently, covenant. It is an astounding promise that on the face of it seems absolutely impossible except for God. Not a problem for him. He can do what he wants, when he wants, and mark it. He'll do this. He'll do this. We're going to see this fulfilled. And it is this covenant, if you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, it is this covenant that the Lord Jesus refers to in Matthew 26, verse 26, when he established the Lord's Supper or communion with his apostles or his disciples. It is this very covenant in Jeremiah, the new covenant, that Jesus refers to. In Matthew 26, verse 26, scriptures say, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. The covenant is that covenant. There is no other covenant he's referencing. The new covenant is the covenant, and there is only one. There are some who years ago taught that there was a covenant for Israel and there was a covenant for the church. And well, there's, there's, you have to really work hard to put that together. There's one covenant and Jesus is speaking. He's a Jewish man, a descendant of David of the tribe of Judah. He is speaking to his disciples who are Jewish men. They know what the old, the, rather the new covenant is, what Jeremiah referred to. It was their hope. It was their longing to see that covenant come to pass. And Jesus says, this is my blood. This cup represents my blood of the covenant. What is meant by that? And again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we'll read in just a few moments as we come to the Lord's Supper, the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 restates what Jesus said in Matthew 26. And as if there was any lack of clarification, the Apostle Paul makes it absolutely clear. The Holy Spirit makes it clear. 
that in verse 25, in the same way, Jesus took the cup also this after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. There's only one new covenant in the scriptures, and it's a new covenant referenced in Jeremiah. It's referenced other places, but there's only one. There's not like new covenant number one, new covenant number two, new covenant number three. There is one new covenant that God has made. It is astounding. It is audacious. It is amazing. God saying, I will make a new covenant with a remnant of Israel and Judah. I will not give them my law again as I did at Sinai. I will put my law and place it in their heart, in them. I'll put my law in them and I will inscribe my laws on their heart. In other words, I will change my people from the inside out. This is called conversion or regeneration by the Holy Spirit. So what God's saying he would do. And this is what we reference at every Lord's Supper. When we talk about the new covenant, we're referencing this covenant that God made. Now, I know we have questions because as far as I'm aware, most of us here, if not all of us, are actually Gentiles. I, I really don't think I'm of the house of Israel or Judah. I, I'm English, Scottish, a little bit Irish, German. I mean, you know, I'm just, I'm just a mutt. Um, uh, you know, it, it's good. Um, I, I'm not aware of, of, of being Jewish, uh, you know. Uh, I wish I was. Uh, it'd be kind of neat. Um, uh, but God made me who I am, and I'm thankful for that. I'm not of the house of Israel, Judah. So the question hanging in the air is, okay, well, that new covenant is so specific. How do we, what, what does that have to do with us? Great question. Just hold it right there for a moment, okay? Move it. I mean, just, just, just keep it. It's there. We're going to come back to it. But I want you to notice this, that God secures and establishes his new covenant with Israel and Judah on the basis of the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, by the shedding of my blood on the cross, I am initiating, I am establishing, I am securing the new covenant. That's the, that's the significance. I mean, it, when we eat the bread, we remember Christ's body was given for us. He lived for us. He died for us. That he is for us, that we partake of him. And when we drink of the grape juice, the cup, which represents his blood, we are declaring that God's new covenant still stands and further that it has already been initiated and established by the blood of his own incarnate son. His blood atones for the sins of that remnant of Judah and Israel represented in part by the disciples. His blood guarantees the promise. That's how serious God is about the new covenant. He establishes it with the blood of his son. His blood atones for the sins. This is the very problem. What was the problem with the first covenant? It wasn't God's part. It was the sinfulness of the people. 
So what Jesus does by his death is he atones for the sins of his people. He cleanses them of their sins. They're no longer under the wrath and the judgment of God as Israel and Judah were. That's why Babylon was there. It was ultimately the wrath of God. The blood of Christ propitiates the justice, the wrath of God, turns it away, reconciles us to God. And his blood guarantees that God must bring all the way through. So what that means is if God's going to establish his covenant by his spirit, he has to actually take his law, put it in his people, and he does that by the regenerating work of his Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus says you must be born again. God has to change you from the inside out. It's the cross, it's the blood that secures and guarantees that. And so what about us? Gentiles. Glad you asked. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and this is the last text we'll look at tonight. Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 11 through 22. As far as I know, I'm not a Jew. I'm not a Jewish man. My Lord is, and I love him. I follow a resurrected, glorified, reigning, soon coming Jewish man. And his name is Jesus. And if you're a Christian, you follow him too. But I'm a Gentile. And under the old covenant, I'd be on the outside. I'd be on the outside. And Paul is writing to the believers in Ephesus. They're largely Gentiles. There's some Jews in the congregation, but they're having tension between the Jewish believers and the non-Jewish believers. And Paul says, after these wonderful, we always quote Roman, rather Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you are saved through faith. We, we, we rightly love Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. But then Paul addresses this question, well, what about us Gentiles? How, how is it that we are made partakers in this new covenant that God makes with Israel and Judah? I'm not of Israel or Judah by nature. I'm not. You can try to spiritualize it and say, oh, yeah, by faith, you know, Gabe, you become a Jew. You, you just you got to show me that and you're going to have a hard time. I'm a Gentile. I'll eternally be a Gentile. The gospel doesn't say God will change you into a Jew. So what do I have to do with this new covenant? Verse 11, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's, that's the case of Gentiles by nature. Remember that, Paul says. And, and sometimes we need to remember that. We were far away from God. Unbelieving Jews, far away from God. 
we're like doubly far away from God because we weren't even close. We were excluded by nature, outside. But, verse 13, now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, establishing peace, and might reconcile them both, Gentile and Jews, in one body to God through the cross, having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, peace to you who were near. For through him, that is through Jesus, we both have access, our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, you Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. A lot of words there, but they are beautiful. I'm a Gentile, but by grace of God, through faith in his Son, Jesus Christ, the descendant of David. The Word of God in the Gospel tells me and tells you, Gentile, you believing Gentile, that you who are far off, you are brought near And you are made a partner in the new covenant. You are brought into full, unhindered, unmitigated participation in the new covenant that God has established with Israel and Judah. You are a full partaker. And in the church of Jesus Christ, There is no value in the sense of there is neither Jew nor Greek. In other words, if you are a Jew, you're not somehow a higher class citizen in the kingdom of Christ. We are one, all purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, though I am a Gentile, though you are a Gentile, if you are a believer, when you read Jeremiah 31 and God says he's establishing this with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, You may not by nature be of the house of Israel or house of Judah, but as you are purchased by the blood of Christ, as he has established the new covenant in his blood, you are made a partaker so that God now, through the blood of Christ, puts his law in you, Gentile believer. That's what he's done, Luke. He's changing his heart. It's what he's doing in you, believer, Gentile believer. He's writing and scribing his law in his heart. In other words, you still sin for now, but if you're born again, there's a reality that you can't escape. And you ready for what it is? You love Jesus and you want to obey him. And if you're born again, you can't help it. Though you've not seen him, you love him. This is the good news of the gospel. And I hope with this little walk through and meditation on the new covenant 
that now in just a few moments when we eat this cracker and we drink this grape juice and we hear the phrase, this cup is the cup of my blood in the new covenant, that every time that we hear that phrase, maybe for some of you, there'll be new significance. Listen, the new, listen I don't know if you understand this. You, the new covenant is your salvation. It is. The new covenant is not like over here somewhere. It is your salvation. There is no salvation apart from this covenant in which God saves sinners, and I end with this, and saves them by grace alone and does so in such a way that their salvation is not dependent upon their fickle faithfulness. Praise God. Because if it's salvation's dependent, Luke, if it's, if it's dependent on his faithfulness, we all know we are done. But God establishes a new covenant, the gospel, the good news, that all who by faith trust in Jesus Christ, God binds himself to that person, promises to save them, change them from the inside out, and bring them all the way home. This is the gospel and the glory of the new covenant. I love the new covenant. And I'm sure you do too. Our Lord loves the new covenant. And he loves it when we come to his table. He loves it. He's longing for the day. Do you know our resurrected Lord, and I remind you, he's resurrected right now. He has a mouth, he has a tongue, he has taste buds. And he hasn't had COVID, so he can taste well. (laughs) My taste is not so good. He has not touched a drop of wine or grape juice. And he says in Matthew 26 that he won't until he's united with us. And so this is an expression of his covenant love to us that he hasn't forgotten, that he died for us, that he purchased us. And that this promise is resting on his character. Praise God not ours. Let's pray. God, we pray that you'd help us to understand the new covenant and cherish it more. Oh, these are such glorious things. We have a hard time getting our heads around them, our hearts around them. But what a God who unilaterally declares that he will save a people for himself and establishes that salvation not based on their faithfulness but your own oh we're thankful for that tonight as we come now to your table we pray that you will be honored that christ will be proclaimed and his death until he comes amen